0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
2: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is
3: full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities of oddities join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the
0: box of oddities so, how's your new tattoo doing?
2: It feels okay. It's a little itchy, but not bad.
0: Should I rub some oil on it for you?
2: Nope. I'm all good. Thank oh, you. Okay. Um, it was a new tattoo place that I went to, though, and it's always a little nerve-wracking when you go to a new shop and, mm. and meet someone new who's going to scar you forever.
0: Sure. It's a little bit of an intimate situation. And sure. It helps if you know the person.
2: It does, uh, but I met the new person, and they were great, and there was a bit of a weird moment, though, um, that I hadn't experienced at a tattoo shop what before. What was that? What was that? I got the tattoo like right on my uh, clavicle. Ouch. And so she's right in my face, really. And she's kind of like leaning on me. Mm-hmm. And she's got to press my parts down in order <laughs> to be able to get a good flat surface. I mean, it was...
0: That That sounds like a two-man job. It was,
2: <laughs> it was a little <laughs> uncomfortable at times. But uh, at one point, this terrible stench just came over me. And it smells like trash left out in the hot sun for days. And I was like, she's an artist, and I want her to stick with what she's doing. I don't want her to have to like take a break. I, I respect that she didn't leave.
0: Did she fart?
2: So Did I, your
0: tattoo artist fart mid-inking?
2: And I, so I was like... I respect this, you know? I rather than have to do the whole gl- regloving thing and mm-hmm. that's fine. Okay. <sighs> Ooh, that's fine. <sighs> but it was so persistent and i was my eyes started watering and i was of course you're breathing differently because you're getting a tattoo and it hurts and and at the same time i don't want to like openly breathe out of my mouth now because she might notice and think oh man she smelled my fart and it was a whole thing so but it stuck around for so long it was so persistent it had a half life like, man what is happening and after A bit. I was like, Do you mind if I get a drink? Yep, that's great. I've got to go blow my nose anyway. And I was like, Okay, that's fine. (sighs) So I got a drink. She blew her nose. She came back and we're back to tattooing, but the smell is still there. So after a few minutes, another woman who worked at the shop walked in and she went, What is that smell? (laughs) And the other lady that was working there said, I don't know. I went next door. It smells there, too. They don't know where it's coming from. Wow! And one of the girls said, I thought someone farted. And I looked at my tattoo artist and I said, I thought you farted. And she was like, I thought you farted. And so we're all (laughs) pointing fingers at each other. And it turns out no one had farted. There was apparently some sort of gas leak or something (laughs) it was a good getting to know you moment yeah
0: it must be tough to run a business when you've got sewer gas escaping into it
2: well the restaurant next door said that it happened (laughs) once before and they just closed for the day they weren't gonna no
0: yeah that's wise Mm -hmm. well i got a story for you does it involve farts it does not involve farts i mean it could have involved farts but there was no reporting on it okay at the time you know how here at the Box of Oddities, we often talk about things that are scary mm. or just um, outright terrifying. And so often when I'm searching for a topic, it begins with, what is it that scares us? And that process led me to this topic.
2: Interesting.
0: Dentistry.
2: Oh, God.
0: <laughs> but not modern dentistry as uh, we know it today, which clearly is a medical marvel. I'm talking about Dentistry from 100 to 200 years ago. Yeesh. Now, as terrifying as it is today to undergo, like, say, root canal Mm. or something like that, it pales in comparison to 19th century dentistry. During this time, people's dental health, this surprised me, was far better than ours is today.
2: Well, they didn't eat as much sugar, right? That
0: is exactly right. Back then... They didn't have access to uh, the large quantities of chemicals that we have in our food and beverages and, and like you mentioned, uh, quantities of sugar.
2: Right. You know that saying, weight loss happens in the kitchen? Maybe it's the same, like oral hygiene happens Mm. in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, not far (laughs) from the truth. But even though in the 19th century, overall mouth hygiene was considered healthier than it is today, once your teeth did start to decay or rot, uh, there was very little that could be done. It didn't matter how much influence or money you had, there were just very few remedies or options. Even nobility and royalty and social elites had rotting and decaying teeth, which in fact in many cases, like we've talked about in the past, it was more common with the upper crust of society because they did have access to sugar. But this led to a push for innovative measures uh, by dentists during this time. If you were poor and your teeth were rotting out, that was fine, no problem. But if you were a king, something had to be done. (laughs) Now, since there was nothing that could be done to reverse decay, dentures became the answer. And dentures, they've been around for a while. In fact, dentures can trace their roots back to about 700 BCE in Northern Italy.
2: It's funny, the way that you phrase that, dentures can trace back their roots. I pictured like a little set of dentures (laughs) sitting at the computer on (laughs) ancestry.com.
0: Drawn in the style of um, schoolhouse rock. (laughs) Now these dentures that were used uh, 700 BCE, they too quickly deteriorated. Often they would be made from animal teeth. In the 1700s, ivory was used more frequently, but dentists were also displeased with these because they, too, were corruptible. Mm. Um, That's when they started to manufacture dentures out of porcelain. Porcelain teeth were considered incorruptible and uh, did give a closer appearance to natural teeth. But the problem with porcelain was that they were brittle and they would shrink once you would fire them. So you really had no idea <laughs> what the final size was going to be because it, they didn't shrink uniformly. Oh. You know, so it was, it was a very difficult process. Now, of course, we've all heard the story about George Washington and his famous wooden dentures. This, in fact, is a myth. Washington's dentures were the highest quality top-of-the-line dentures that were available at the time uh, in the mid-1700s. They were made of a carved hippopotamus ivory plate, and into that plate were inserted some real human teeth, but mostly horse and donkey teeth. Yes, the father of our country had donkey teeth. Huh. But all of these types of dentures were considered clunky and uncomfortable. They had like little spring mechanisms in them and just not a very comfortable thing to put in your mouth every day. So back to the 19th century, this is when dentists took a very different approach. They began exploiting, well, a darker side of medicine that was popular at the time, and in that lawless time, meant uh, using real human teeth.
2: Grave robbing.
0: Yeah, well, it didn't start that way. Mm Mm-hmm. There were limited sources to get real and healthy human teeth.
2: Right, most people want to keep theirs.
0: But... Some people didn't, because doctors would offer them large sums of money. They would find poor people that had healthy teeth, and they would actually convince them to sell their teeth to the dentist. Now, this sounds pretty horrifying, but if you're living in abject poverty at the time and you're desperate, this might have been an answer. And many resorted to this. The dentist would pay them a big chunk of money, and then they would go in and extract all of their teeth.
2: Oh, my God.
0: But it's not surprising that these types of volunteers were rare, mm-hmm. so another source had to be explored. The next source of human teeth...
2: Who came, else can we exploit? <laughs> ...came hmm.
0: from those who were subjected to capital punishment. Uh-huh. Executed murderers and convicts were commonly sold right off the mortuary table. Oftentimes, they were just parted out like an old car. And even that didn't satisfy the demand. And so the next step was to bribe those who worked in hospitals and mortuaries to just steal the teeth of dead people.
2: I mean, they don't need them.
0: They would pay these people money, people that had access to those who had recently died, uh, to extract the teeth and and, uh, bring the teeth to the dentist before the body was buried. Now, this was illegal, but officials tended to ignore these crimes uh, for the most part. But even this source of real teeth had been mined to its potential. So the next move, of course, was to employ, as you mentioned earlier, grave robbers, resurrection men. And again, these crimes at first were mostly overlooked by law enforcement, especially if the graves were those of paupers, but not so much by the local grieving people. And this caused numerous conflicts.
2: Well, if like if you do a good job of grave robbing, no one's going to know that you did it. So just stop sucking at your job and we'll <laughs> all be fine and have teeth.
0: Oftentimes what would happen is that these grieving loved ones would Hide in the cemetery or the graveyard and wait for the body snatchers to show up, and then they'd beat the shit out of them and, <laughs> and lynch them right in the right in the uh, in the graveyard. Oh man! So this led to a whole new cottage industry of grave robbing tools.
2: Can you use the grave robber's teeth once you've hung them? I would think. Sure. I mean, they were executed. Yeah, we've said that that's okay.
0: This led to a whole new cottage industry of grave robbing tools, like the use of what was called a dark lantern. It was a candle lit lantern that could be darkened with a special shutter that wouldn't extinguish the flame.
2: Oh, smart.
0: It was invented for this purpose. They also used (laughs) specially made wooden spades. These wooden spades kept the noise level down.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And then they
0: would also, they learned very quickly that if they shoveled the dirt onto a sheet before replacing it in the grave, it would leave no trace of them digging there
2: work smarter, not dumber. I guess that's obvious.
0: But regardless, the practice of stealing teeth from a grave was disliked by society. And oftentimes dentists would be questioned as to the origin of the teeth that they were using. And people at the time were fine with using teeth from a corpse that had been executed. But if the corpse had been exhumed, if the teeth had been in the body and the body was buried, mm-hmm. they didn't want any part of it.
2: Sure. Well, I remember when my sister got new corneas, I was like, hey, where'd these corneas come from? And they were like, corpse. Uh-huh. And I think it would have felt different if they were like exhumed corpse. Yeah,
0: well, sure. I can certainly see that <laughs> as, as being an issue. So dentists started marketing the teeth of a dead person as, quote, natural teeth. Smart. That didn't fool too many people. They all knew where most of the teeth came from, and that was exhumed bodies. So they had to find a different source. The answer soon came. It coincided with the onset of the War of the Seventh Coalition, also known as the Hundred Days War. That's when the military alliance was formed against Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. It was a common practice after a battle for looters to go onto the field and pick the pockets of dead people. Now... They were also looking for a different commodity, teeth. After the battles had finished, groups of looters would swarm upon the dead and carefully extract healthy teeth from the dead soldiers. Chewer looters. The war, of course, culminated in the Battle of Waterloo in 1852.
2: Nom nom nabbers. Tens of thousands
0: of men lost their lives in that battle. And the dental industry was in full bloom at the same time.
2: Mastication muggers.
0: The battlefield was strewn with thousands of bodies both dead and living. That's all I got. Many of the uh, wounded lay dying surrounded by their dead comrades. A man named Major Fry, four days after the battle, said, quote, the sight was too terrible to behold. And not just with the dead and dying, but also the hundreds of looters that were there pulling teeth off the dead. And unfortunately, those who were not quite dead. (gasps) That must have been a horrible. Oof. Experience. You hear somebody coming, you're lying there wounded on the battlefield. You hear somebody coming thinking you're going to get some help, and all they've got is pliers. a pair of pliers.
2: Ooh, that's dark and makes me very sad.
0: It's said that even a year after the battle, bodies still remained on the battlefield. And here's something that I really wasn't expecting these looters weren't just locals that were teeth scavengers, as they were called. It was also many of the surviving soldiers. They would go out and pull the teeth out of their buddies. But in addition to that, many of these teeth scavengers traveled all the way from Great Britain just to harvest teeth from dead people.
2: So if they heard that there was going to be a war, they might start their journey as though they were taking a business trip?
0: Particularly after the Battle of Waterloo. The teeth from tens of thousands of soldiers were removed. And there were so many of them that they shipped them back to England in barrels. Oof. These teeth became known as the Waterloo teeth. And they were extremely sought after. And the reason is that the majority of the men who died at Waterloo were young, able-bodied European men. And their teeth were healthy and white. Once the teeth arrived in Britain... They were sorted and then boiled. This is about the only way they knew how to sanitize sure. them. Dentists would then sort through these teeth and compile a set of upper and lower teeth. Uh, they'd then remove the root part and cut them to shape. They'd then fix them to an ivory denture plate. Molar teeth were not used. They were more hard to extract and you can't you, really see them. You anyway. can't see them anyway. They just kind of concentrated on the teeth up front. The resulting dentures were so realistic that they became highly sought after. All the way through the 19th century, men and women all over Europe wore these dentures, the teeth of dead men. Oftentimes, they were so prized that they were passed down through generations.
2: Oh, heritage dentures?
0: Yep, they'd give them to family members. Many examples of the Waterloo dentures still survive today. In an article written for Ancient Origins by Aleska Vukovic, it was summed up this way, quote, just imagine to fight for a cause you know nothing about to charge through cannon fire and canister shot to a deafening sound of musket fire mm. and the rattling of sabers, then to give your life there in some faraway field in Belgium for the whim of a wealthy man. And then years later, some wealthy English lady sipping on her afternoon tea would nibble on a cookie with the teeth of some fallen and forgotten hero of the battle of waterloo my source information ancient origins dental products report <laughs> and wikipedia waterloo teeth Ooh. they're out there eh. the box
3: of oddities with cat and jethro gilligan toth
0: i've got to tell you the longer we've had our aura frame the more i love it i have kids Sir Walter Scott's romantic novel, Ivanhoe, was published in 1820. Ivanhoe is set in 12th century England, and in it, it references mercenaries or soldiers of fortune. But since this was medieval times, most soldiers of fortune fought with swords and lances. As with any soldier of fortune, you could hire them, if they were available, in the novel, Ivanhoe, Maurice de Bracy, the leader of a gang of mercenaries known as the Free Companions, said this, quote, I offered Richard the service of my free lances, and he refused them. This expressive 19th century word captured the popular imagination, and soon it was being used in other contexts. And that's where we get the term freelancing. Christy sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. I'm from Georgia, and I'm surprised you haven't noticed with your recent move to the South that destroying newlyweds' cars before a ceremony is definitely not an urban legend. As Kat said in Box 449, it's (laughs) true. Before I married my ex-husband 27-ish years ago, my sorority sisters, my cousin and my brother, his groomsmen, etc., gathered together and decorated my car before the extremely Presbyterian non-alcoholic wedding ceremony, and it was to be presented to us at the reception for a going away. Oh, no. Not only were there tin cans and old shoes tied to the rear of the car, but they painted the windshield with shoe polish, letting the rest of the world know we had, quote, just hitched. On the inside of the car, they piled baby powder inside the air vents and set them on hurricane level. No. So that when we started the car, we were assaulted with a white plume or cloud of dust that stuck to everything and made us appear as if we were dressed up like ghosts. Upon our exit from the church reception hall, we had to dodge the absolute barrage of flying rice. Yes, it actually happened. And it hurt like hell. (laughs) And then I had to shoo a possum out of my back seat.
2: What? (laughs) Someone put a possum in your car?
0: (laughs) My car smelled like baby powder and possum shit for the remainder of the six years that I owned it. It also rattled rice out of the vents when I sold it. Thanks for what you guys do. Keep flying that freak flag. You beautiful freaks. Love y'all. Christy.
2: Oh my gosh. So much fun. Yeah, we had a couple people reach out about that discussion we had regarding wedding traditions and such. And uh, I was informed that the rice birds thing is not true. That uh, according to like the Audubon Society, rice doesn't kill birds.
0: It does kill ants though, right? No, that's cornmeal. We had an ant problem and you used uh, something and they ate it and it made them blow up. What was it? Was it cornmeal?
2: Oh, Yeah. I think so. Yeah? Yeah. But then we started using lavender oil, and it smelled nicer and was less killy. So that was good. We got a message from Anastasia on Instagram. I don't know if my husband messaged you guys already, but you have to know about this. Backstory, we own a company, and he's the head honcho. Okay, so he was listening to the episode where Kat talks about the fossa and their mating habits. His headphones disconnected on the part where Kat was talking about their spiky clit. All all I hear in his cube next to me is, oh, in an office full of people. (laughs) I don't know if anyone heard, but Jesus Christ, it was funny. You guys need to know because... (laughs) I always hear about this happening to others, but we had yet to experience it.
0: Yeah, I th- we did get an email from. I think I mentioned it a, a bunch of episodes ago, or maybe <laughs> it was a different person that had a similar experience. Maybe huh? I'm not sure, but yeah, that that sort of thing happens quite a bit.
1: Yep. Sorry about that. Oops. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rohl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away
0: to read later. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Ah, summertime. You're at the pool, lake, or ocean. You have your sunscreen, new book favorite beverage then you awaken to find ants have eaten half your left foot and you're headed to the emergency room ah summertime this is the box of oddities
2: the statue of liberty is considered by some to be the most famous statue in the world this massive lady stands on Liberty Island in the upper New York Bay, here in the States, and her name is actually Liberty Enlightening the World. However, she's often referred to as Lady Liberty, and she was a gift commemorating the friendship of the people of the U.S. and France. There are so many fun facts and also a lot of myths about this beauty. so. Let's get into it. All right. There's this strange yet persistent confusion that the Founding Fathers had something to do with the Statue of Liberty's creation. Of course, this is right out. A French historian, Edouard de Labouillet, made the proposal for the statue. And then the designer, Frédéric Bartholdi, Based the face on his mother, Charlotte, in 1876. Now, I probably will never say that name again, um, either of those names, because they're very French. And I am a very not Uh French-speaky type. (laughs) So... It's kind of neat knowing that the face of the Statue of Liberty is based on an actual woman, and it's the artist's mother. All right, number two, the statue was painted green as a decorative enhancement. Now, of course, we know that the statue is made of copper. And actually, originally, a lot of asbestos was used too, <laughs> but it was eventually removed. Uh, the statue was constructed of 60,000 pounds of copper sheets. They were hammered into shape by hand and assembled over a framework of gigantic steel supports by Eugene Emmanuel Violette Ledoux and Alexandre Gustave Eiffel. Now... Again, I will not say those names again. The copper plates that made up her exterior were a dull reddish-brown color, and the plates gradually turned green because of oxidation. This process creates a patina of copper carbonate, which helps protect the metal from progressive decay. And so, no, the, the Statue of Liberty was never painted it it just became that way through a natural metal process
0: yeah that's what i always thought that it was just you know the copper turning green yeah
2: as pennies do yes The Statue of Liberty was supposed to be inaugurated on the 100th anniversary of American independence in 1867. I'm sorry, I'm dyslexic. 1876. But things moved a little slower than expected, and U.S. President Grover Cleveland inaugurated the statue on October 28, 1886. Incidentally, women were banned from attending the dedication of Lady Liberty. As it should be. (laughs) So suffragists chartered a boat and held their own (laughs) ceremony in a nearby harbor, loudly proclaiming the hypocrisy of men erecting a statue of liberty embodied as a woman in a land where no woman has political liberty. Wow. Yeah. Now, about 200,000 people lined the docks of lower Manhattan to watch the French steamer Carry the Statue of Liberty into New York Harbor. She arrived from France in 350 pieces, packed into 214 crates aboard the ocean liner. She was 151 feet, one inch tall, or 46 meters, and weighed about 225 tons. That lady got booty. The lady herself, of course, was constructed in France, but the base was constructed here in the States, and the funding for it was our responsibility. And uh, the U.S. struggled to come up with the funds. Even Congress was inept, if you can imagine it. Congress could not come up with a feasible funding package. That brings us to myth number whatever it is. I don't remember. Three now? Question mark? Pennies were collected from New York school children to pay for the erection of Statue of Liberty. That is not accurate. In fact, 95% of the money used to install the pedestal that the statue rests upon was sourced from wealthy donors, thanks to the efforts of Joseph Pulitzer. Really? Yes. The famed publisher hosted a fundraising campaign to help complete the amount needed to pay for the statue's pedestal. There's no record of school children contributing pennies toward the funding of the Statue of Liberty.
0: So that's been an urban myth. I always thought that was true.
2: Now, the Statue of Liberty appears to be standing still. Now, of course, it's a statue, so it's not moving anywhere. But Lady Liberty, or as we will call her LL Cool Freedom from now on, (laughs) is actually mid-stride. Her right foot is is moving forward, meaning that she's always moving forward, as freedom and liberty should be. Which I didn't know that, and I think it's really neat. Anyway, there are those that believe that Lady Liberty was a celebration of the Union victory in the Civil War and the end of slavery. Bartholdi was hoping that leaders in his own country would adopt similar ideals of liberty, democracy, and freedom. Of course, he was inspired by that first Frenchy guy that I mentioned, mm-hmm. Edouard René de Bouillet, who was an anti-slavery activist. So in addition to the whole friendship and celebration thing, um, it also had a lot to do with personal hopes for his own country. Now, LL Cool Freedom has a crown with seven points, each of which represents the seven continents and the seven seas. And there are those that believe that they may also represent the seven freedoms, civil, moral, national, natural, personal, political, and religious, which further lends itself to the idea that this was a real multi-purpose gift. Myth number, I totally lost count. You can climb up into her torch. No, you cannot, not anymore. No, there was a time when tourists were allowed to climb up to the top of the Statue of Liberty. But now, nobody's allowed to climb into the torch as it carries too many risks, and there's a real terrorism concern. And this rule has applied since 1916. Only NPS staff can still go up into the torch, and they have to because of the floodlights. Uh, The Statue of Liberty features 16 floodlights, and the torch has to be maintained from time to time. So they have to climb a 40-foot ladder to access the torch.
0: I remember hearing when I was in school about why they closed it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, 1916, it was a um, German munitions attack. Yeah. And uh, how did that go? Two million tons of explosives went off in the harbor, and it popped some rivets or something in in Lady Liberty's arm, Yeah, and now you can't go up there. And I remember hearing when I was in first grade that they thought the arm was going to fall off.
2: Oh, they did? Yeah,
0: they said, well, probably it's going to just fall off. Wow. So they can't let you up there.
2: Do you think that they thought that, or they just said that?
0: Well, I had a first grade teacher that was a bit of a prankster, and so... (laughs) Thinking back on it, perhaps Mrs. Dow lied to us.
2: You know, I think it's a terrible thing for teachers to be pranksters because then you grow up and 60 years of your life, you're thinking, well, that arm's probably going to fall off any day now. I
0: know. I've been waiting for it to happen.
2: Lady Liberty's crown, though, is accessible to the public, and there are tickets to the crown that can be bought uh, by authorized parties, of course, but usually have to book in advance because it's quite a popular tour. I've never been inside the Statue of Liberty, and I would like to do that very much. Thank you. I don't think
0: I've ever seen it in person.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I've seen it in person. I've have just... you? Not been in it. Okay. Now, if you're planning on tootling up to her crown, which sounds like a euphemism, but it's not. (laughs) Tootling up to the crown, (laughs) if you know what I mean. I mean, if you can find the crown, am I right? Right. Now, you're not going to get up there by way of elevators or staff assistance. Uh, Climbing up there is actually kind of like going up a 27-story building. And it is recommended only for those who are fit or at least moderately healthy, and children younger than eight are not allowed in.
0: 27 floors? Mm. I had no idea. They should put an elevator in. I love the country, but I'm not that patriotic.
2: Another myth is that the statue was erected uh, to act as a lighthouse for New York Harbor. No, but I get it, because it did. But that wasn't its intent. For a few years in its early existence, The Statue of Liberty was also officially a lighthouse operated under the authority of the Lighthouse Board. Between 1886 and 1902, the statue functioned as a lighthouse, although it was not intended to be one originally. Unfortunately, maintenance costs for the beacon were about $10,000 a year, and they came out of the Lighthouse Board's Budget and Congress uh, was trying to solicit for special funding, but once again, completely ineffective. Congress? Mm I know. Ineffective. I know. So, in late 1901, even though the statue had been open to the public for 15 years, most of the entrances were boarded up, and there was a serviceable entrance that was kind of like an unpainted wooden stairway. It was very shifty looking and there was only one toilet for visitors and that was just a small shed that hung over the seawall oh my god it wasn't a real upscale situation like
0: like a pittsburgh potty yeah just a shitter right out in the open
2: There was actually a cistern on the grounds that had caved in that left just this weird hole. It was not a great situation. So anyway, in late 1901, the War Department asked the Lighthouse Board to release its jurisdiction over the statue, which the Lighthouse Board was thrilled to do because it was just a money suck at this point. It was like a a Tom Hanks vehicle, if you will. And on March 1st of 1902... Was
0: that a vague reference to the? The 1986 comedy epic, The Money Pit? It was. Okay.
2: (laughs) Where was I? Oh, yes. 1902, the Statue of Liberty was discontinued as an aid to navigation. And in 1932, the National Park Service assumed control. And it's not been a lighthouse since. There's also this kind of weird thought, misconception, if you will, that the statue's torch, which is made of copper and covered in gold, was part of... Ronald Reagan's presidential legacy. Now, the torch was replaced in Reagan's tenure, but it was not part of anything that Ronald Reagan was doing. It didn't really have anything to do with him or his administration in any way. It was just something that they were doing.
0: If memory serves me, it was the 100th anniversary of the uh, Statue of Liberty and they refurbished it. Does that sound right?
2: That sounds right. Like
0: 86, 1986? It was 86. I remember there being a... A, um, I think it ended up winning some sort of an award, uh, a photograph of one of the workers scrubbing the crown and kissing the statue on her on her forehead.
2: Oh, yeah. I'd like to see that. Anyway, it didn't have anything to do with Ronald Reagan. Wasn't he in a movie
0: with a monkey? Ronald Reagan? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bedtime for Bonzo. Or <laughs> something <laughs> oh, like that.
2: Jesus. <laughs> All right. And finally, there is a... Persistent misunderstanding that the poem, The New Colossus, that is on a plaque at the base of the Statue of Liberty, was written by a French philosopher, when actually it's one of several literary works written for the Art Loan Fund exhibition. Oh, really? And it was read at the opening of the exhibit in 1883 but then completely forgotten and it wasn't even included when the statue was unveiled in 1886. It wasn't until much later when a friend of Emma Lazarus came back upon the poem and was like, "Hey, we should we should put that on there because it was part of the it was part of the whole thing, right?"
0: Makes sense. Yeah,
2: but it's very cool that it was written with the idea that it would help raise funds for the pedestal so that she could stand as tall as she does, 305 feet. The poem, by the way, really quite lovely. I'm not going to read it for you, but you should you should read it. It's nice. I got most of my information from allthatsinteresting.com, Lighthouse Friends, City Travel Hub, <laughs> Reader's Digest, The Travel, The Fact File, and Britannica. I think it's
0: fun that one of your sources of information was uh, was Lighthouse Friends, and one of my sources was... The Dental Products Report. where <laughs> we're digging deep now.
2: Yep, you know it.
0: For those of you who have checked out our newest podcast, The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toth, thank you so much. We appreciate all the uh, correspondence we've gotten and the uh, the positive reviews. and It's very encouraging. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, the link will be in the show notes. And if you want to feel good about yourself, this is a good podcast to listen to because we're promoting self-esteem through other people's bad choices.
2: For real, it is a real boost.
0: Check it out again. The link is in the show notes and we'll see you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
0: And fly it proudly, you beautiful
3: freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
2: Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed, sunset gates shall stand, a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command, the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, your wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door.